As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Previously on Days Front Office. It was obvious to, to me at Washington State that uh, as a first coach there, that I now wear the expectations of other people, uh, white people and black people, their expectations of, 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 of me as a, as, a, as a, first of all, as a, as a, a black person and, and, and as a black coach. Uh, it, but failure was not an option because if I fail, that closed, that, uh, closed the pathway for other opportunities. And so I, I, I had to, to succeed. That was George Raveling from part one of our conversation, talking about being the first African-American head coach in the history of the Pac-12, which at the time, 1972, was still the Pac-8. This week in part two, George and fellow Hall of Famer Wayne Embry share more stories about how they overcame discrimination and became legends in the sport. Dave's front office is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Our host is Dave Wolf, who has spent a half a century in every conceivable NBA role, except owner, but he's working on it. He's been a player, assistant coach, head coach, assistant GM, and GM. As a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania, he was once insulted on the court by a ref who called him an Ivy Leaguer. Here's Dave Wall. Welcome back. In part two of our conversation with Hall of Famers, Wayne Embry and George Raveling, they'll share stories of discrimination they faced in society, but how basketball and sports were instrumental in teaching Americans about how different races could work together successfully. George, do you think, like, you know, Wayne said that, you know, the black players and the white players got along pretty well on the teams. Would you would you agree that sports has been always a little ahead, maybe sometimes way ahead of society in terms of race relations? Uh, absolutely. Uh, I, I think part of it was was because we, we we had a shared destiny and it was and we had a commonality. The game the game was was our glue. And we and I think subconsciously we realized that for us to achieve success, it, 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 that it, we were going to have to do it uh, together. I think they spent more time around us. They witnessed the the reality of of life for a black player, and and so I think those things, uh, instead of separating them, they uh, they brought us uh, 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 closer together and and. Uh, the, the the pigmentation of a person's skin uh after a while it it, 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 it you didn't see they didn't see race they didn't see uh, a color of skin they saw the person they were, i'm not naive enough to say that they all uh, were 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 not 
uh, racist. There were some that that still had they were born into a world. You, you're not born uh, a, a, a racist. You're taught to be a racist in that. One one thing that I I, I don't know that I I've ever said this publicly before, but when Wayne was talking about Oscar and, and Russell and he brought Wilt up, um, I had a, a, a very close friendship with Wilt from the time he was a senior at Overbrook High on. And actually, one summer, I was Wilt's chauffeur. He's now with, he's now with the Philadelphia Warriors, and he had this purple Bentley convertible. And so, and we used to spend a lot of time together in the playgrounds and hanging out. He lived in a section of West Philadelphia called on Cobbs Creek Parkway. And he had these two huge great Dane dogs. But what, I'd go by and, and, and he, or he'd pick me up and we'd go to playgrounds and, and, and I'd chase the ball for him and so forth. So one summer he asked me if I wanted to make some money. I said, doing what? He says, uh, you can drive me up to these camps. He, he, he had a ton of camps that were hiring him just to come and make an appearance. And that, and he says, I'll pay you $100 a day. You do the driving. Because Wilt didn't really like the drive. And and so I would do the driving. And, and Wilt would sit in the, in the, and he had this 100-pound this, this or 50-pound barbell. And he, and when I was driving, Wilt would be doing these these arm lifts uh, and, and and building up his arms. He had he had amazingly strong arms, and and, and we would uh, and so I I would drive him around to the camps, and he would he, he would do some dunks and autographs and so forth. And we'd go we'd do one camp in the morning, one camp at night, and and uh, and and. Uh, and, and 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 so over the years, right up until Will died, uh, we 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 had a very very close friendship. It was always uh, uh, Will. Every time he would see me for the first time, he would look and he would say George Ravelin. He always called me by my full name. He'd always say George Ravelin. But he was Will was. Uh, was an amazing athlete, not a great volleyball player. He ran on a mile relay team at Kansas. Uh, he was, he, and he was obsessed with being, with being the best. And, uh, I, and, and so I always look back with fondness of that, that relationship because I was still living in Philly. I was, li- I was living up in the section of Philadelphia called Germantown. And he was living over in West Philadelphia in the Overbrook section. Wayne, you played against Russell, you played against Wilt. What was the difference trying to prepare um, to face either one of them in a game? Was it the same or was there different, different things you had to prepare for because they were, slight, they were different type players? Well, they, they were, but there was a lot of similarities. Uh, Russell, of course, was known for his defense primarily. And he was a great facilitator in offense. A lot of things ran through him. Uh, the Boston Celtic plays ran through them, but uh, Russell wasn't nearly as strong as Will, and I knew that uh, that I could move him around a little bit. But coming to Will, it was a little different story. 
what we the way we played what was I would try to keep them away from the basket the best I could keep doing the dipper dunk they called it back in those days and try to force them to shoot a fadeaway jump shot and then I'd run the other way to score on him because uh, he was a little slower getting down court and but uh, yeah I, I prepared differently for the two because of the different style of play Will could protect the basket pretty good too as well but I uh, but I give them credit for me developing three-point shot. It wasn't—it was only two points back in those days. But <laughs> where they shoot it today, I give them credit for helping me develop that shot. <laughs> let me get it off into that hook shot I had. Didn't get to the rim back back in those days playing against them. But uh, between Russell, Wilt, and Nate Thurman, I developed an outside shot. Um, George, you and Wayne both have um, mentored and talked to and uh, known um, so many coaches in, in your life so far. Um, and George, I know two of your friends that became elite coaches, John Thompson and John Chaney, recently passed away. And I want to ask you about them, but I want to interject one little story I have about John Chaney. Um, when I graduated from Penn and I got, I got drafted uh, by the 76ers in the third round, uh, I played in the Baker League, which was one of the top summer leagues, and John Chaney was the coach. And here I was, this left-handed Ivy League kid, drafted in the third round. Nobody gave me much chance to, to make a pro team. And John, John knew me just from, I guess, watching Penn play, but um, boy, every time in the huddle, in the games, he played me a lot of minutes, and he just kept pushing me, kept telling me how good I was going to be, kept telling me I could make the league, kept, kept telling me to never give up on my confidence. So I had a, I had a great experience with John. What did, what did you admire, George, about the two of them the most? Their courage and their conviction. They, they were the courage to, to speak out and, and, and not only to speak out uh, verbally, but they 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 took they lived the, their their behavior manifested their words. They were they they and they were stubborn, a positive type of stubbornness. I know John since I was uh, uh, thirteen, fourteen years old. We grew up in the same neighborhoods in Washington D, the D.C. and, and we 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 stayed in touch. Like I said, he. When he when he uh, he played on one of the greatest high school teams of all time at John Carroll, at uh, uh, Archbishop Carroll in in in, in Washington D.C. and and so as I said when he when he visited Villanova I hosted him and so we kn we knew each other all throughout life we became lifetime friends uh, I had the honor of being his assistant on the '88 uh, Olympic team uh, but. In, in, in some ways, uh, Thompson and Cheney were basketball's answer to Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. They, you know, Cheney was a, was a, was a hardcore radical, uh, uh, a great articulator of, of his uh, 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 and always simple wisdom. But they, uh, it, to me, they were, I call them the two wise men. And uh, they, 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 their true value uh led in leadership uh they 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 were far more leaders and role models than 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 
just basketball coaches and they were more than friends. They were my role models. Uh, they, they were my heroes, uh, right up until the, the day that they died. Uh, I, I, I literally, uh, uh, was in awe of both of them. And, and the one thing uh, about Cheney and, and, and Thompson was this, it didn't take you long to figure out that your your job was to listen and not talk. Because the more you talk, the less you learn. And so, whenever I was around uh, John or uh, Cheney or, or Thompson, I I would I had my my best my hearing aid up to loud, and I'd listen. And, and because they and 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 uh, I was I, I'm actually older than John Thompson, but these these guys had so much wisdom they uh in in modern terminology we call them wisdom bombs where those guys would be dropping wisdom on you every 60 seconds and and so i learned so much about life uh from them they 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 the two of my best mentors ever and they were so dedicated to the to the the young people that they coached they realized that they had a responsibility to help raise someone else's children. When you really stop and think about it at the college and the high school, uh, you have a unique uh, role as, as a coach. Someone has taken their prized possession, which is their child, and they're sending to them to you. And so you have an awesome responsibility and, and a covert way to parents saying, I'm going to send you my child. I want you to send me back a young adult. And Cheney and Thompson, they, they, they felt that uh, teaching them how to win in the game of life was far more important than winning a basketball game. And so, and they respected the opportunities they had to uh, had been entrusted uh, with someone else's child. I remember one year I had a kid on my team uh, named Mark Boyd, uh, who was the only player I ever coached who started all four years. And he started all four years for me at, uh, at USC. And when I got the letter of intent signed, uh, when I was walking out of the house, uh, his mom walked me to the door and when she was saying good, and I said goodbye to her, she looked me in the eye and she said, Coach Ravlin, I don't want no foolishness out of you now. And that's what the, the essence of coaching, someone is sending you their most prized possession and they, they, and they expect you to teach them more than just how to play basketball, but how to be a winner in life. And nobody in my mind that I knew epitomized that more as coaches and John Cheney and 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 uh, and John Thompson. You know, Wayne. Despite the racial climate that existed in the early '60s, late '50s in the U.S., um, when you were with Cincinnati, you had Jack Twyman, one of the top white players in the league, take over as the guardian for Maurice Stokes, a black player who had shown incredible potential as a young man, but then succumbed to an incurable disease. You also worked with Twyman to help um, oversee Stokes's care. Wasn't that a great example of what care and compassion can look like between two people of different races? Yeah, I was. That was a terrific uh, experience, and and 
you know, Jack stepped up and <clears throat> became uh, Reese Stokes' guardian and under a lot of uh, controversy at the time. Uh, but it was just amazing that he sacrificed somewhat of his family, but his family is very supportive of him to kind of adopt Maurice because Maurice was in Cincinnati with no family around and he needed the support and the help at the time and Jack stepped forward. And <clears throat> I think uh, that was a great human story and story that should be told often. Jack, a white man stepped forward to be the guardian of a black man when in need. And uh, there was many people who gave Jack support, but there were those who were totally critical and adverse to it. And he, uh, he did it anyway. And uh, it was just amazing to watch and see. And uh, people in Cincinnati rallied around it. You know, the black community did. And, you know, Jack just did it, felt an obligation to do it, and he did it. Um, George, you decided to leave coaching after you got in a serious car accident and faced a long rehab. When you saw photos of Tiger Woods' accident, did it bring back memories of the recovery you faced at the time and how difficult that's, that recovery might be for him? Uh, I, I really, to be truthful, never looked at it in that, in that context uh, uh, but I can imagine, uh, you know, his inner emotions because I, I can remember mine uh, uh, when I had the car accident, the, when the police got there and they were get, getting me out of the car to take me to the hospital. I remember one of the policemen saying to me, he said, coach, he said, you're the luckiest guy in the world. He said, I've been on a force now for 37 years. And 99% of the time when we get there in an accident like this one, the person's dead. And, and so, uh, of course, I ended up being in the hospital for over uh, 60 days with, uh, with operations and rehabs and so forth. And uh, I, I tell you a quick story about being in the hospital. So one day they got me under all these drugs and I'm, and I, and I, uh, I, I wake up and I and and I, I look look and there's John Thompson and, uh, and Mary Finland sitting in the room. He had John had flown all the way out from Washington D.C. How he got in the hospital in the room, I never know. But all I remember is, is waking up and looking, and there's John and Mary sitting there, uh, and and uh, she has a rosary bead. She's saying the rosary, and John is uh, and. But that accident uh, was was my 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 uh, final realization that it was time to move on from coaching to, to and, and and to reinvent myself and find another way to to lead a, a meaningful life. But I I think the rehab will be the most difficult part for for Tiger Woods uh, go, going forward because. The rehab involves self-leadership and self-discipline because there's days when you don't want to do the workouts. There's days when they're going to push you beyond your capabilities. And, and at the end of the day, uh, I think ultimately 
it'll all come down to uh, Tiger Woods' ability to to, uh, to to do the rehab part. You know, Wayne, you were also coming to the end of your career as a player, but you got to spend two years as Bill Russell's backup in Boston, and you won your first championship there. What was different in Boston in terms of chemistry from your previous teams, communication? Because having spent time in Boston as an assistant coach and an assistant GM, I, I thought it was just different there from a lot of the other teams. Well, of course, the South got great support in Boston, but uh, they're playing for Bill Russell, his first year as coach, and then, of course, Red Auerbach. And in my opinion, Red Auerbach is a tremendous leader, one of the best that ever I've ever seen and had the experience of knowing. And Red uh, was a big difference, you know. He, uh, you know, we often wondered why, what was different, because we had pretty good teams in Cincinnati, but why is it they keep winning, beating us every year, uh, notwithstanding the fact they had Russell and Sam Jones and other great players on the team. But uh, we felt we were as good in a couple of the playoff series. We were actually had the, the lead, just couldn't win that seventh game. And so I often wondered what the difference was. And so getting to Boston in, in, in that environment, I quickly learned that Red Auerbach was a big difference. He just knew how to inspire, motivate players. And, and he did it because he got to know the players. He's a people person. And you manage people, and he uh, just knew what buttons to push, what not to push, and, and when and when not to. And he's just a great leader and, and quite an inspiration. And, and uh, so he, he, uh, in my opinion, notwithstanding what Russell did, but in my opinion, Red Arback was the difference. You know, did you take some of the things you learned from him into the management side when you got into that side of the NBA? I used a lot of Red's uh, traits and what I learned from him uh, when I got into the front office because it worked. And so I figured if uh, it worked for Red, maybe I could emulate him to a degree and it worked for me. But uh, I think in being a general manager or coach or whatever front office job you have, you gotta realize that it's a player's game and players come from diverse backgrounds, different personalities, different needs, and getting to know them is critical. I think you gotta know your players and know what buttons to push to motivate them when when not to buttons not to push that would discourage them and and uh, you get the most out of your players that way and I uh, I try to use that practice in the front office, and hopefully, would impart that into the coaching staff, and they would do the same. And so you get the job done through other people, and the other people are the players. So you got to know and know when to, when not to, and that was kind of the philosophy that I learned from Red. I want to pivot a little bit away from just the basketball side. Um, both of you lived through Vietnam, the civil rights marches, the riots across the country, and the ultimate passage of the Civil Rights 
act while you were still young men. Do you remember um, what was going on in your mind at this time as you were witnessing all this? Um, George, you could start if you want. Um, I don't remember, uh, obviously, the, 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 the thing that always will remain paramount when it comes to the, the civil rights movement in, this, in the 60s was uh, the fact that I uh, ended up being a, a security guard at the March on Washington, and and I was uh, assigned uh, to be uh, the security force up on the podium. And of course, at the end of the, the uh, King's speech, uh, as he started to, uh, the part of the security strategy where we were to engulf the, the podium and and we're going to get and uh give king the uh the necessary security and there was the plan also if there was any demonstrations broke up we were to move all the people from the dais out the back part of the lincoln memorial we had buses parked out there and we would get them on and so the uh there's so much history behind this i have a dream piece so, but the, the conclusion was that for whatever reason, when I got up close, Dr. King was folding this speech, and and uh, and I, for what I, I have no rationale that I can offer why I did this. I just, Dr. King, can I have that copy? And he folded it and he gave it to me. And just as he did, the rabbi who was doing the benediction said to him, Dr. King, that's the greatest speech I ever heard. And his attention turned away. And the rest was history, but the part of the historic part of the I Have a King uh, dream speech is, first of all, the original copy uh, of the speech uh, that had no title. And and I Have a Dream portion of the, of the talk was not included. Everybody had to submit their, their talk, uh, all the speakers that they had to submit their talk in advance for approval because they didn't want there to be any demonstrations and the crowd get emotionally involved and all of a sudden we have these out of control demonstrations. So everyone had to submit their speech and, and had to be approved. They made John Lewis changes 12 times and James Baldwin, uh, they, they, they wouldn't approve it. And, and he refused to change it. He said, if you ask me to speak, I'm gonna speak about what I wanna speak. And, and if you don't, then no. And so they wouldn't let Baldwin speak. So King's original speech had no title. And and so as he gets toward the end on the diocese, Mahalia Jackson, who most people would say is the greatest gospel singer of all time. And she used to sing at King's uh, rallies. And so she had heard King's the I Have a Dream part in Selma and in Detroit at uh, Aretha Franklin's dad's church. And so you can, just as he gets to the last paragraph, you hear this voice say, tell him about the dream, Martin, tell him about the dream. And so at that point, he adds in the I have a dream piece into the speech. It wasn't originally intended. And so when, when the delegation goes to the White House afterwards, when they walk in the Oval Office, President Kennedy says to Dr. King, he says, Dr. King, I loved your I Have a Dream speech. 
And so the media captured that and put the, the title, I Have a Dream speech on there. But the, historically, the speech had no title. You kept the speech, George, and I, I understand you've also kept a number of racist mementos over the years. How come? To my knowledge, the only person who has a, a larger black postcard collection than me is Whoopi Goldberg. And I have them back in before you had to put a stamp on the postcard. And all the black postcards were very derogative. They'd always show black people with big lips and smiles and watermelon and all those derogatory things, cotton, all those stereotype uh, things that uh, uh, white people would, would, would use uh, to degrade black folks. And so I, I have well over a thousand postcards, some with stamps, some without stamps, messages written on them, very derogatory messages written on them. And and so uh, I just continue to, to collect uh, black memorabilia. I have, a, I, I have a, a first edition of Uncle Tom's Cabin. I have a lot of, of first edition books. And it just became a hobby of mine over, over the years. Uh, to collect uh, black memorabilia. And uh, I, I, in the last 15 or 20 years, I got away from it. But there was a time when anytime I went to a city, I'd go to the yellow pages in the book. When we had telephone books, I'd look up the, for uh, antique stores and I would go and, 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 and try to find some black memorabilia that I could buy. And, and so over the years, I'd come up with a, a substantial uh, uh, a collection of of, uh, of black memorabilia. Wayne, um, you know, th this was a time, early 60s, when I think sometimes you guys couldn't even stay in the same hotel uh, rooms with your with your teammates. And uh, do you remember what you were thinking during all these this disruptive period in the early 60s? Uh, well, it was what it was. And uh, couldn't stay in the same hotel on many occasions. But, uh, it's just something we accepted until civil rights movement started. And, you know, I look back on those days and we were trying to change, make, make a difference. But uh, it, we uh, weren't as secure in those days non-guaranteed contracts and what players have today. And so uh, there were those who were more secure, that were more activists, but uh, it was uh, something that uh, now I look back on, again, the humility that we suffered. It makes you really appreciate Dr. King and, and uh, John Lewis and Rosa Parks, and it was a good thing that happened. But what I'm fearful of is today we regressed and we got to go through it all over again. I just don't like where we are today. And hopefully, uh, with the young people, we can make a difference again. George, that was part of my next question um, is, you know, with the the elevation of white supremacist groups by this last administration, does it, does it seem like much has changed or we've taken, you know, two big steps backwards? I, I think that the, the 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 reality is that the times our social structure has changed 
and and uh, technology has has become uh, uh, the civil rights best best freedom fighter. Uh, technology uh, has uh, that now has allowed people to experience. Uh, 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 what goes on in our social system in real time? Uh, with, with all the borders are now uh, uh, blurred, and, and and so what has happened today is that technology has has unearthed a lot of things that have been hidden before. There were white supremacists going back as far as the Ku Klux Klan. It's not a new entity. It, 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 today, the, the social awareness is the, is the best it's ever been in its life. The handheld device allows everybody to have their own public library. And, and, and so we have access to information instantaneously. And I think that the technology allowed people to, to see things in real time. And when you go back to these recent demonstrations, if you look deep into the crowd, most of the demonstrators were white. And there was only, and this is a historic fact, there was only one continent in the world where there was no demonstrations in, in, when, uh, during these recent movements, and that was Antarctica. So the, 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 this whole uh, Black Lives Matter, which to me, Black Lives Matter is a movement and it's a statement. And so, but what you find is that the, it was the globalization of the message. And so all over the, the world and every continent, people were demonstrating and they weren't just black people, they were white people. And so it sensitized our society. Right now, uh, uh, from a black perspective, I think that the story that continues to be amplified is the role of the black woman and 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 the 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 past the present and the future of america black women have taken on a significant uh a role in our society today there's eight or nine cities in the united states right now where the mayor of that city is a black woman and so i think that uh, it, it, it's it's a, a unique moment in history. First of all, uh, it's a woman. Second of all, it's black, and they taken on a position that no uh, of of significant leadership. And so, I think to me that's a gigantic step forward. The role of and the significance of women. In, 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 in our lives today, not just cooking food or keeping the house, raising children, but black women are raising America's children, not just their own children. And so I think this is a, a, a moment in time when we can all be significantly proud of the role of women in our lives and and the increase uh, in relevance and important they're going to have as we go we go forward. And so, uh, from a black standpoint, I think I, I think uh, we've made historic progress. Uh, it it just depends on what one defines as progress, what one defines as as success. 
but I'm greatly uh, uh, pleased with the role of black women and and not only in the life of of, of 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 black folks, but in the in the life of America because they're hap they're writing American history right every day in, in our in our society and and so I, I'm immensely encouraged about the future. You know, we we all know, especially you two, um, how powerful words can be and and how powerful a word can express an idea. Um, the two of you have heard every name a black person has been called uh, far more than I've ever heard. But one of the things I still think that is used, and I'm curious to get your opinions on this, and George and I, you've touched on this, we've touched on this a little bit in our discussions, um, is I still think the word African-American is used to separate black people. I think it puts them in another, like caste or it puts them in another sub-segment of, of the population because you never hear any other American referred to as a Polish American or a Lithuanian American or, but now you get an African American as if you're not a full-fledged American. I'm curious what you might think about that. Um, Wayne, any thoughts? Well, I think we've gone through being called a Negro, uh, colored people, we talked about earlier, uh, and I think we went through a, a stage where uh, maybe people thought that being called those names were offensive, and uh, we'd rather be called black. And we started becoming black Americans, but then uh, I think a sense of pride being further designated as being African American because we asked where we came from. The continent of Africa, and uh, reflects back on the early days of slavery and on through uh, the uh, period of Reconstruction and on fast forward up to where we are today. And I think several years ago, uh, it was determined that we be referred to as being either black or African American as opposed to being colored or. So I don't have a problem with it. Do we ever get to a point where we don't need the descriptive terms? Um, I know, George, you and I once, I think you once mentioned to me that your concern is even in the next 30 years, you're never going to be able to change the bias when someone sees the color of your skin. Well, the one thing that we have to get past is, is, uh, is is this this idea of race race is a is a construct it's it's a device that is, has been used dating back to england forward the colonization is to separate this the separation of people and race becomes a validation a way to keep people in in, in this social construct and, and, and to me at the end, the, the the end of the day, the one thing that uh, is, is is these are my three realities. One, I, I, I'm a human being. Two, I'm an American, and three, I'm black. And none of those things are ever going to change. And, and 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 so within that, 
you, you, today, what I worry about more about the United States is the language of America has become green. It's all it's all about money. It's about it's about influence, power, and money. And when how can ten percent of the population dominate ninety percent of the population? That's the that's the social reality in America today is that 10% of the population dominate 90% of the population. And why does it 10% dominate? Because power, influence, and money. George, you know, I'm excuse me, Wayne, um, at the end of your playing career, you end up going into the executive side. You become the first black GM in the NBA. How did that opportunity come about? I had retired as a player, went back to Boston, worked for the park department, and Wes Pavon, who was the owner of the Milwaukee Bucks, happened to be in town in the tennis tournament. And he uh, called and asked to stop by and visit, came by and we had a nice visit. And then he got to the point of saying to me, how would you like to come back to the front office for the Bucks? And uh, I wasn't sure. I said, well, let's talk it over and talk it over with my wife. And she was in the other room. She came in the room. We discussed it further. And she said, well, I'd like for you to come back and be uh, assistant to the president. And uh, we uh, also got a chance to make a trade for Oscar Robertson. And you give him a call and maybe nudge him along. And that sounded pretty appealing to me. Uh, he says, what do you think of, of a trade? And I said, well, if you can trade for Oscar Robertson, I think it's an instant championship. That's how it came about that I got into the front office. And then a year later, the owner called me and told me he'd be in his office at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I had no idea what he wanted. And he said, uh, come on in and sit down. He had two of his business associates with him. He turns to me and he says, you're the new general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks. And I says, what do you mean? I said, they're kind of dumbfounded. <laughs> you're the new general manager of the Milwaukee Bucks. But I hadn't heard that the present general manager was leaving. You end up getting Oscar, and he joins with Kareem, and you win, you win a title. And then I think a couple of years later, Kareem comes in to you and says, hey, I really want to go to um, L.A. or some other location he might have named to you. So you've got to make a trade and trade away the most valuable player on your team. And of course, try to talk him out of time to time. And he says, no. He says, I'm gone. He says, if you don't trade me, I'll go sign with the ABA, New Jersey Nets, and you get nothing for me. And so I was able to convince ownership that uh, let's do it and get to make the best trade we possibly can make. And so several months later, I get a call from Pete Newell. He wants to meet. So we've uh, arrived at a place to meet halfway between LA and, and Milwaukee. And so we hammered out a trade that I thought was good for both. You know, um, 
You've hired coaches in your tenure as a, as a GM, and after you left Milwaukee, you went on to uh, Cleveland, where you won um, two Executive of the Year NBA awards. Um, recently, there's been some criticism from the Coaches Association about the hiring of Steve Nash in Brooklyn and Chris Finch in Minnesota because um, they didn't feel there was a, a full vetted search uh, that included minority candidates. Um, you know, do you think that reflects poorly on the league if they don't go through that each time there's an opening? I think the league made tremendous progress. Uh, I know uh, when I hired Lenny, there was concern that uh, before I took the job, when I was interviewing for the job, that I would hire a black coach. And I told ownership then that I would hire the person that I felt best qualified. And that's how I think the world should be equal opportunity. And so uh, I ended up hiring Lenny Wilkins. And he uh, became a Hall of Fame coach. And then later on, we hired Don Nelson, who became a Hall of Fame coach. So it's just a matter of being given equal opportunity to, to everyone who, who wants the job and go through the interviewing process, not look at color, look at the person you think can do the best job for you. Would, would they have, and George, this, this would be for you, I guess. Um, would there have been any uh, controversy if the two coaches that were hired instead of Nash and Finch right away without a search were black? Uh, I, I think anytime you hire a coach, regardless of, of the, their, their race, it, 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 there's always going to be a, a point of contention. There's always going to be someone that someone else thought was a better candidate for the uh, uh, for, for the job, I, I think what what is important is that there be equal opportunity. That, that to me, that's the issue: is that there's an equal opportunity that uh, uh, to, uh, as to who can be hired. Um, interesting enough, why we've been on this this call. Uh, uh, about 10 minutes ago, it, it, uh, it, it came up that, that the Atlanta Hawks fired Lloyd Players. Oh, wow. And so there'll be some, there's always going to be a controversy about a person being hired, whether he's white or black. Uh, it's, it's just the nature of the times. For me, I think that the important issue here is equal opportunity. And if 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 there's a, everyone has an, an equal opportunity, then then I'm fine with it. George, you even we discussed that once. I think uh, you and I uh, over breakfast one day because you said to me you thought that one of the keys to furthering equality was not that black people had to be liked by whites or feel that they they had to get their approval, but all they needed was the equal opportunities afforded them that white people were getting. Right. I mean, to me, uh, this is, uh, you know, I, I've always been a person who believed this. If you give me my choice of whether uh, you like me or you are going to respect me, 
I, I, I'm going to go for respect all the time. If you respect me somewhere along the line, you'll learn to like me and that. And, and so I think it's important that uh, from a, a racial standpoint, that blacks get the same respect that their white counterparts that, and, and, and the same opportunity. And then let, let, let things uh, uh, have their own, their own course forward. But to me, I think a big problem is equal opportunity. Wayne, would you agree with that? That's all I think we can ask for, equal opportunity. I think uh, over the years, <clears throat> you know, blacks have prepared themselves, uh, to go to the same schools, get the same education, and all we ask for is equal opportunity and respect and i think given the opportunity we've seen what has happened over the years and i think i look at the nba as an example uh i think there's seven black coaches now i think at one point we were up to 13 14 and uh i think it goes in cycles but i think when a job opens up if black person has the same opportunity as a white person, then it's up to the owners or the general manager to hire the person they feel that can do the job for them. But as long as you have the equal opportunity, that's, that's all we ask for. Um, there's only one black majority owner in the NBA right now, and that's Michael Jordan. Is, is the only reason that that exists, he's the sole guy uh, due to the uh, enormous amounts of money you need to buy a team nowadays? Well, I think uh, you'll see more in the future. Even with the high dollar price now on teams, I think you'll see more people of color in the future. Black, we have uh, people, uh, Asian people own teams now. I think the NBA is a terrific model for us. The world. I think uh, we are global and we provide opportunities for people throughout the world as players, as front office executives, as coaches. Uh, and I think eventually we'll see more ownership. Um, one of the great honors each of you had was being uh, inducted into the Naismith Basketball Hall of Fame. Um, how did you react and what were your feelings when, when you learned you're going to be inducted? Uh, George, why don't you start that one? Well, first of all, it was something that was uh, never once in my life that I ever aspire to be in, a, in any Hall of Fame uh, uh, to, to go into the Basketball Hall of Fame was, was something that took a, a, a lot of uh, ultimate uh, comprehension on my part and I actually went in as as a contributor um, and so it was a moment in time that was unexpected uh, uh, I'm not certain to this day that I'm deserving of the honor and I don't say that to be humble because I'm not a humble person I just say it to tell the truth I'm not sure uh, I still I still wonder how I ever uh, ended up in in the Hall of Fame, and uh, 
but I, I'm respectful of the honor. I'll, I'll always be deeply appreciative of the honor, and I'll try to conduct myself in an exemplary manner because I owe that to all those people who uh, paved the way forward for, for me to even be considered uh, in the Hall of Fame. And, and so um, it's, it's, it's a, 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 a moment for me that I, 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 I grapple with, but I also realize that with that honor comes a great responsibility and so I try to live the, the remaining time I have here on the planet trying uh, to, to be a, a, a Hall of Fame person and, 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 and to, to conduct my, myself and my behavior in that manner. But it's, 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 it's probably the, the most startling thing that's happened to me uh, in, in my lifetime. Wayne, how about you? Well, it was indeed an honor because you know, I started playing basketball at a very early age and <clears throat> didn't know where it was going to take me. And uh, through high school, through college, into the NBA, and as a player, and then later on in the front office. So my whole life was dedicated to the game of basketball. And uh, while in the front office, I served on USA basketball and other basketball committees, and always wanted to contribute in making the game better. Uh, I was one of the early pioneers in uh, Special Olympics basketball when I worked with Special Olympics and Unit Shriver and Special Olympians. And uh, when I got the call that I was nominated, I didn't think much of it. And then when I got the call that I was elected to be enshrined, of course, that's a great honor. And I was very humbled by it. But again, me being devoted to the game as, as I have and many others, Father, I just want to be an inspiration uh, using being elected to the Hall of Fame as an inspiration to hopefully affect and inspire others to do the same. Who, uh, who would you say are the biggest, have been the biggest influences on your life? Who was the biggest influence in my life other than my wife? Yes. Uh, I think uh, probably uh, <clears throat> my college coach, because he uh, helped develop my skill on and off the court. Uh, made me realize that it's important to not only excel on the court, but also in the classroom and the rest to take care of itself. So he was a great influence. My high school coach was as well, but I think coaches have been the greatest influence in my life and I've always respected the coaching profession and the inspiration they've given to young people. So, George, how about yourself? The biggest influences in your life? Well, it would be my grandmother. Um, it would be first and foremost. And I have a, a cousin who just recently died who 
was on the uh, the, the uh, a federal judge. Uh, he was always my role model as a young person growing up. I always wanted to be like him. Uh, he went to Dartmouth undergrad and he went to Georgetown Law School. And then uh, Robert Kennedy brought him into the Justice Department. From there, he, it, the rest was uh, uh, a, a remarkable legal career. Uh, I would say my high school coach certainly uh, uh, he, he he molded me pretty much into the human being that I am at an early age, and and I would say it uh, in the contemporary times would be John Thompson and and Coach Lefty Drizel, and and then from a, a life experience I've always kept in my office at Nike and home a collage of a headshot of three people in the, that are framed in, in together. It's uh, Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, and Malcolm X. They were my mentors. And one thing I learned, you don't have to know a person for them to be your mentor. And so everywhere I've I've had an office, I've always kept this collage with the headshot of of Martin Luther King, James Baldwin, and Malcolm X. And and those are my mentors. you know, lately we've seen, uh, because you you both from George, your side, especially with Nike um, and the development you took part in and, and really basically have been responsible for both domestically and international basketball for Nike and Wayne on the management side, the players have really started to grasp their own power uh, probably in the last five to 10 years and even more so the last couple of years, KD going to Golden State. AD to the Lakers, Kawhi and PG to the Clippers, KD, Kyrie, and Harden to the Nets. Um, They've really learned not to wait for teams to put them together. They've figured out that they can look and find the players that they want to partner with to try and form championship teams. Um, What do you two two think about that? Are you in favor of that? Because I I think it's really an interesting thing that's going on. I like to see it different. But that's the times we're living in, and uh, players, when they play international competition, they bond, they bond at all-star games. And of course, everyone wants to play on a championship team, and that puts the onus on management to put that team together, develop the culture to win. And uh, that way you can hopefully keep your players, but it doesn't work that way anymore. Players leave championship teams as well to be with uh, either with their buddies or with their family. Or, so, you know, I can't, uh, it's not that I like it, but there's not a lot we can do about it, it seems like. George, how about you? Uh, I, I think that we have to recognize that we are in. Uh, the 21st century and players today are are uh, overtly more socially responsible than players in the past but a part of this is because of the money it's a different time but but and yet uh, russell and wayne and uh, and and a whole host of black athletes, Jackie Robinson, other sports, Jim Brown, were, were every bit as socially responsible. 
I think the amplification of what they do is greater today because of technology. And, and, and players have a better social awareness of, uh, of their importance. And, and, I, and, and they've become, uh, they've taken over the, the leadership of their, their lives in that. And so I think right now we're going through uh, some cultural changes as people uh, be, began to uh, amplify their voices and, and change their behavior. And uh, I think players today certainly are trying to demonstrate that they're socially re responsible. And along the way, there's going to be some some hiccups, and you're going to say some things that 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 maybe are controversial. But at, at the same time, they have the courage of their conviction. So I don't I don't have a, a, any real discomfort with it. I realize that there's uh, there's always going to be differences of appearance of opinions. And when you become an elder statesman, well, we, we all like to think our times were a lot tougher than this, than the, than the young people, but young people are going through a, a tremendous cultural revolution now. And, and, but they're, 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 uh, they're being far more responsible for their own lives. And, and I think that's good. You know, we had the pandemic, the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, the election year, pretty much all take place within the last year or so. Um, the players were locked into this bubble, which for me is, is almost impossible to imagine um, what they went through. Um, do you think they were able to get their message across? I mean, they could each put a message on the back of their jerseys, but they weren't able to really be with friends and family or out protesting individually if they wanted to. But do you think that was a way for them to at least feel like they could get their message across and, and the use of social media? Uh, George, you can go with that one or Wayne, either one. Um, to, to me, uh, uh, I, I think that what has happened is the players uh, have been able to amplify their their opinions uh, with their messaging, whether it's on T-shirts or or, or 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 on the courts or whatever. But I think what at the end of the day, the, the true essence of it will be behavior. What we say. Demands uh, uh, that we back it up with with our behavior, and so, uh, and I don't think that this is something that's necessarily confined to just professional athletes. I think it, 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 it it's applicable to us as everyday day, day citizens. Is that we 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 have a social responsibility, and and we 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 can. Uh, verbalize it, but at the end of the day, it's all going to be uh, uh, about behavior. At the end of the day, the three biggest responsibilities that we have from a self-leadership standpoint is we have to manage our attitudes, our behavior, and our performance. Wayne, any thoughts? <clears throat> no, I, I admire and respect the fact that players even though they were isolated in the bubble uh, on their uniforms and through social media in any way they could 
get your points across. We're, we're uh, quite active. Uh, I think uh, they, like other human beings, would like to make a difference in, in the world. They see it today. And the way you make a difference is to express yourself. And they have every right, every right to do that. Uh, and I encourage it as well. Uh, it's great to see Pop, Greg Popovich, and Steve Kerr, and Kyle Kobler, and, and others who aren't black speak up for equal justice, opportunity for, for all. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, we talk about systemic racism. But those who create the system are human beings. And so it's important that we do what we can do to change the hearts and minds of people. And uh, I think the athletes, given the platform they have, are doing a terrific job of expressing themselves and hopefully they can make a difference. I, I uh, think LeBron James, he's put his money where his mouth is. So he has the right to speak out and not shut up and dribble. Uh, he's been far more than others who have been critical of him have done. And so I think it's really important that, uh, that individuals, all individuals speak out and try to make a difference in this world and try to get love to conquer hatred. And uh, you live in the 80-20, used to be 80-20, it may be different now, maybe 30-70 or 40-60, but the 60% uh, of the people or 40 or 70% of the people or 80% of the people who are group good American human beings and and uh, try to do things the right way, have to influence and help change the minds and hearts of those who are just thrive on hatred. And so we got to continue doing whatever we can do to make a difference. Do the two of you have confidence, and, and this is my last question for you today, do, do the two of you have confidence in the younger generations as they seem to care so little about things like color and gender, religious affiliation, ethnicity, that have been dividing lines in the past. George? I, I have a supreme confidence in our, in our young people. Uh, as long as we continue to support them and with the necessary tools for growth opportunities, we'll be fine. I, I, uh, I'm, continue to be blown away by uh, the creativity, the courage, the intellect, the enthusiasm of our young people uh, uh, today. Uh, I, I feel very confident that, uh, that they will, will continue to make uh, not only America a, a better uh, a place, but make the planet a better place. I, I, I'm, I, I'm all immensely impressed with their maturity, their, their aggressiveness, and they're going to need all these inherent skills because we as adults in many ways have failed them. And we, they are going to inherit an absolute mess from us. And then, but they're going to have to figure out how to, how to make it better. But the world that they are going to inherit from us 
we we have given them a a supreme challenge uh, to to lead us through the 21st century into the 22nd. And uh, and we have to be mindful that they have the core uh, values and and, and basic 21st century skills to to do the job. But in some ways, I, I have tremendous empathy for young people because we've given them an absolute mess to inherit. George, Wayne, I want to thank you so much for joining me on Dave's front office today uh, with your insights. Um, I, I think this has been a great opportunity for our listeners to hear from two people who've been with the game of basketball for so many decades. And, and I really thank you for sharing your thoughts with us today. Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on with Wayne. Thank you. Thanks to my guests, Wayne Embry and George Raveling, for their wisdom and perspective. Thanks also to our producer, Bruce Bernstein, and to our editor, Kristen Woolley. Please check out all of our Pure Hoops Media shows wherever you get your podcasts. And please check out our Pure Hoops Media YouTube channel for more great hoop stories. Dave's Front Office with your host, Dave Wool, is a production of Pure Hoops Media. Oops.